I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Merisham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, Y. Kellerman, Saadaid13, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we turn our attention from Gaza to the occupied West Bank, where the situation is getting very precarious, and that may be an understatement. Things are very dangerous for Palestinians in the West Bank right now with the outbreak of settler violence. We'll be speaking with Professors Dana L. Kurd of the University of Richmond and Diana B. Greenwald of the City University of New York. This is a pretty in-depth discussion, so I want to get right to it with our guests, Dana L. Kurd and Diana B. Greenwald on the occupation of the West Bank. On this edition of Parallax Views, we have a bit of a, a panel discussion, I suppose, with two guests, uh, Dana L. Kurd, a political scientist at the University of Richmond and author of Polarized and Demobilized Legacies of Authoritarianism in Palestine. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. And also Diana B. Greenwald, a comparative politics scholar at City College of New York, uh, whose book, Mirrors in the Middle, Indirect Role and Local Government in Occupied Palestine is forthcoming from Columbia University Press. I believe it'll be out in spring 2024. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you for having us. Doing very well, all things considered, I would say for all of us. But um, yeah, it's been a long month. Um, maybe to start out, 
Dana, uh, could you talk about how you've been uh, processing this last month? Because I think that perspective needs to get out there more. Um, it's a hard question, honestly, because I'm not sure I am processing the level of destruction that we're seeing um, and the level of violence that we're seeing. Um, obviously, things were not good even before the October 7th attack. And we were seeing um, escalating violence in the West Bank and and obviously the blockade in Gaza was ongoing and all of that. But at the same time, like there has been, you know, it's undeniable that there has been a, a paradigm shift as a result of the last month's uh, events. And yeah, I don't know that I've processed the level of violence and the level of destruction. Um, I've just been trying to do this kind of thing, trying to engage with, um, media where I can make a thoughtful contribution so that people have a wider understanding of, of um, kind of the, the background that led us up to this moment. What, um, what real quick do you think people are missing about the events that have transpired in the past month? What do you think people are getting wrong? I ask this because one thing I keep hearing and I keep hearing it repeated over and over again by figures that I'm not a big fan of, like Alan Dershowitz, uh, people basically saying, oh, you know, everyone in Gaza was so supportive of Hamas. Uh, they won by a huge majority. And, you know, the fact is, my understanding is they won by a bare plurality. And I think there's a lot of misinformation out there about the people of Gaza and what happens in Gaza. Yeah, I, I think that is one big component of... Um of the gap in people's knowledge is um like why why do we have Hamas in Gaza what were what was the trajectory of this political and militant movement that led them to taking control in Gaza there's a there's a you know there's a backstory um the idea that Gazans voted for Hamas well no Palestinians in both territories took part in parliamentary elections back in 2006. And like you said, they won by a plurality. And that plurality was not won because people necessarily agreed with Hamas's ideology. It was kind of a referendum vote against the status quo, which was already back then clearly a very stagnant uh, and and um, decaying uh, uh, peace process uh, that, that Palestinians um, disagreed with. So there's, there's, there's that context. There's polling that we have. Um, the latest polling from the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research came out in September. The Air Barometer um, had just finished their polling, like I think October 6th. So we know what people in Gaza feel about their governance, their living conditions. We had huge protests in July against uh, um, what people saw as like the failures of the Hamas government to provide services. And, and there's a lot of internal discussion and debate in Palestinian society around Hamas as a movement. And I don't think any of that kind of diversity of opinion um, makes it into mainstream media. That being said, I, I do live, maybe Diana can correct me, like, I feel like I live in a bubble. So like, I feel like in my bubble, like, that kind of that kind of information is 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 in like, you know, the New York Times and is 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 in the the nation and 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 those kinds of those kinds of outlets, but I'm not sure how much that's seeping into the broader discussion. I also wanted to say, as much as I, you know, I brought up uh, the question of 
support her for for, for Hamas or being against um, Hamas in Gaza. I mean, r- regardless of that question, I think people should recognize that, uh, you know, civilians are dying in Gaza. And I, I almost think the question of, well, do these civilians support or not support Hamas is kind of secondary. That's just my view. Um, I think that's the view of international human, right. human rights law. Well, also. yeah, I would agree with you. Yeah. Um, Diana, I wanted to kick it over to you. Uh, what do you think about what has transpired in the past month? And, you know, I wanted to ask you about a response that I've gotten when talking about what Donna spoke of, which is, uh, you know, people will say to me, oh, you're you're contextualizing brutality if you talk about everything leading up to October 7th. And I don't really understand what people mean by that. Um, I think they mean that I'm trying to justify what happened on the 7th, which I'm not. Uh, but what do you think about this idea that we can't talk about everything that led up to the 7th and what is happening now? I mean, I think that that sort of trying to enforce that limitation on the conversation is just antithetical to what we do as scholars, researchers, analysts, those of us that are trying to immerse ourselves in understanding uh, what's going on in Palestine and what's going on in Israel. It's really quite basic to say that context, um, you know, people's experiences with oppression, um, intergenerational experiences with oppression, uh, you know, structures of discrimination, all of that can shape whether individuals or organizations choose to use violence or not, or whether, I mean, you know, in the first place, whether and how they choose to resist, and then if they do so, whether they choose to do so violently or not, all of those factors can play a role, as can, of course, individual agency. Right. So I just don't see this need to have this kind of either or. And, you know, I think it really is quite reminiscent of some of the debates in like the U.S. political sphere in the wake of or the discourse, let's say, in the wake of mass shootings, for example, where people, uh, you know, generally on the left or sort of Democrats tend to try to raise the, the question of how you know, um, access to arms and how policies and how structures can shape these types of events occurring. And yet there are some that, you know, seem sort of inherently unwilling or almost psychologically unwilling to have those conversations in those moments. And the conversation becomes, you know, the the cliche like thoughts and prayers, basically. Um, so I think there are a lot of factors at play for, um why individuals may or may not be willing to have the conversation about context and about history and about histories of violence and oppression and all of these factors that we're looking on Gaza. Um, in some cases, I think maybe there are sort of psychological barriers for people, but then I think in other cases, it is um, a more conscious effort to redirect conversation away from acknowledging those things. Do you want to do you want to add to that, Dana? Yeah, no, I, I I completely agree. I think the problem with this moment is it's hard to 
I mean, sometimes it's very easy and very clear who is weaponizing the situation so that they can create the binary of black and white and create like very easy, you know, narratives that can be tweeted out. Um, but then sometimes, like you said, like it's it's trauma and and it's um, intergenerational trauma and people responding to feeling attacked and, and feeling, um, uh, you know, like there's an existential threat. And so I it's hard to have that kind of rational discussion and provide context or, or provide any kind of background information when it's difficult to parse that out. Um, but, but yeah, I completely agree with what Diane said. So I want to yeah. come to the topic that I invited both of you on to talk about. I, we've talked a little bit about Gaza, uh, but I'm really worried about the situation in the West Bank. Uh, you know, I've, I've been in contact with um, Anana Shrawi, who was uh, formerly the, Palestinian Authority's Minister of Higher Education Research. And she said, uh, you know, within weeks of the attack and then the bombing in Gaza, she hopes people don't forget about what's happening in the West Bank uh, with the increased settler violence. Uh, do you think that some people are maybe forgetting about what's happening in the West Bank right now and that there does need to be a sort of dual focus on both Gaza and the West Bank? I'll let you tackle that first, Diana. Oh, uh, absolutely. I think that we've seen um, just over the course of, you know, many decades and really since the occupation began that the, you know, political um, fates in some ways, even though they've diverged so much in terms of governance in Gaza and the West Bank, I mean, Palestinian, um, the Palestinian experience is united across these places in terms of facing military rule facing um, structural forms of, uh, you know, uh, dispossession, et cetera. And so I think, you know, this is something that more recently we can also cite, for example, just in 2021, um, when we saw the prior outbreak of conflict between, you know, Israel and Hamas and Islamic Jihad, in which the initial, you know, response that came out of, of Gaza from Hamas and, and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, you know, launching rockets uh, into southern Israel at the time was in direct response to what was going on in Jerusalem and, and also what was going on in the rest of the West Bank. And so, you know, I think for all of these kind of um, prognoses and discussions about the future of Gaza, if and when we get to this kind of elusive day after this horrific um, ongoing massacre and destruction that's going on there, that discussion really can't take place without talking more broadly about what the future is going to look like for the rest of the occupied territories and, you know, and also arguably for the rest of, of you know, historic Palestine, including Palestinians inside of Israel. Um, but in the West Bank, for sure, we've seen uh, a huge spike in violence that was already building for the past at least, you know, year and a half to two years, particularly since this really far right extremist um, government came into power, but really over the past two to three years. And then we've really seen it shoot up in terms of settler violence, military violence, um, 
you know, waves of arrest against Palestinians in the West Bank. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's been, in sense, a form of like localized, you know, ethnic cleansing and violence that is not as sort of spectacular as like what we see in Gaza, but it's the same sort of processes. I just want to add to that. I mean, I, I would go further than than calling um, some of these figures like Ben Giver just far right. I mean, I, I think figures like Itamar Ben Giver actively, I think they're supremacist in their attitudes. Um, Dana, do you want to add anything to that or? Yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I completely agree that what's happening in the West Bank feeds into what's happening in Gaza and vice versa in terms of the the um, the motivations of certain groups like Hamas or Islamic Jihad um, and and the motivations of even like activist groups and things like this that um, uh, operate in in um, different parts of the Palestinian territories. But I also think I what I would add also is like what we're seeing play out in the West Bank um, is part and parcel of the Israeli policy towards Palestinians. Um, and it's playing out in a certain way in Gaza and it's playing out a certain way in the West Bank, but it's it's basically the same policy. Um, and it's a policy of refusing to engage with Palestinian national claims at all um, and, and, and continuing to kind of kick that ball down the road. Um, and I think it's really important to acknowledge that the the government that we have in Israel today with the finance minister like Bezalel Smotras with the religious Zionist party in power um, they have a particular vision for what happens to Palestinians. Now, there are arguments and debates about how much um, this vision is um, actually that different from previous iterations of Israeli policy. I'm not even going to get into that debate because, you know, that I think it's kind of a, a secondary uh, point. The point is the plan set in motion by Bezalel Smotrich, which he called the decisive plan back in 2017, is basically to um, give Palestinians three options. It's either to surrender any national claims and live without any rights in very small local communities um, and, and just accept that they will be subjugated. If they don't accept that, they should be transferred. If they refuse to be transferred, they should be killed in war. Like that, that is his decisive plan. And I'm, it's not officially a plan of the Israeli government, but it's basically become the de facto uh, um, Israeli Israeli uh, policy towards Palestinians. Um, and so that we need to understand that as like part and parcel of, of everything that's happening um, in, in both territories. Um, and then also just to like point out some like, like key figures I think listeners should know about. Um, 2022 before October 7th, had already recorded the highest level of settler violence since 2006, which was when they first started recording settler violence and and, and keeping track of that. Um, there have been thousands of arrests. Uh, the Prisoners Club in Palestine says over 3,000 since October 7th in the West Bank. Uh, Bet Salem, an Israeli human rights organization, says that 16 uh, villages have already been displaced entirely. And all of this is since October 7th. Um, so, yeah, it's like... It's not as much in the news because people do separate things out and maybe don't understand that this is all part of the same picture, but it's definitely accelerating in the West Bank. And like Diana mentioned, maybe we can talk about this more um, as, as the episode progresses, but like 
whatever political solution is going to be in place that people are talking about and debating about in Gaza is predicated on this also functioning in the West Bank. And I don't know that people have a clear view of like what that is or what what that's going to look like. Do you want to add to that, Diana? I have a few things I'd like to add, but but I want to give you the table first. I mean, I would just reinforce uh, what Dana just said about some of these trends that have been ongoing. And, you know, I think in addition to um, the settler violence, the um, the outright, you know, riots and, and what were referred to as pogroms against Palestinians across the West Bank uh, in the past year in towns like Hawara, um, in uh, Tormasaya and other places. And and now, uh, by the way, not to interrupt you, but now I, I'm hearing a lot more from, you know, the Armenian community in Jerusalem that they're being targeted as well. Yeah. Right, right. Evictions and expulsions in, in Jerusalem. And so, you know, I, um, you know, I, I gave a, I gave a talk at, at one point um, earlier this fall where I sort of titled the talk stasis or interrenum. And the idea was like, are we in this period, this was before October 7th, you know, but are we in this period in particular, my work focuses on the West Bank. So I was drawing kind of empirically on what's been going on there, but you know, how much longer can this kind of supposed stasis of settler colonialism, of ethnic cleansing, of occupation, of all these things that we know have been there for 56 years, you know, how long can this continue before we see some kind of massive disruption, right? Um, are we really in a in a more of like an interregnum period where we're sort of between two major political eras, right? And I think that a lot of us were, of course, not predicting something, you know, like October 7th and like the ongoing onslaught that we see in Gaza right now. I would never say that. But, but you know, really questioning, like, this seems like such a just tinderbox ready to explode in a massive way at any time. Um, and so, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, my attention had been focused on the West Bank. I didn't necessarily you know, predict or anticipate that what we, you know, what we would see in Gaza. But, you know, I think that the reference to the interrenum is basically from this quote, this off-cited quote from Antonio Gramsci that was like, you know, uh, in this interrenum period between two different, let's say, political eras, uh, a, a great degree of morbid symptoms can appear, right? When you're in this period where it's not quite clear if there's some kind of transition to some new reality that's going to take place. You end up descending into a, a really, what can be a really violent and morbid and horrific transition just to um, abuse Gramsci's original intention of the quote a little bit. But, uh, you know, I think that's something I continue to wonder about where we are right now. I mean, for the last two years, we've seen, like, like you said, nobody could have predicted what Hamas did on October 7th. But for the past two years, we've seen militias in the West Bank. We've seen pretty severe violence in the camps and in the old city of Nablus. Like, I think anybody who's been paying attention to Israel-Palestine has said like mass violence is like very likely. Um, 
we just see it in this particular way. And I, I was just reading this interview um, with um, this like psychoanalyst, uh, Robert Lifton, and, and, and he calls this like status quo of like violence, malignant normality. I really like that mm -hmm. term. I was like, mm -hmm. that is very much what we've been seeing um, in Israel-Palestine right. for like years now. Right. Right. I just I wanted think, to add, yeah. if if I could real yeah, quick, yeah. I thought it was important what you said there. And I, I think people that do not understand the occupation need to understand this. You said 56 years. Yeah, I've I've talked to Francesca Albanese, who's the um UN special rapporteur on the the uh, occupied territories. 56 years is a long time. I think people really need to hone in on that. 56 years of this. Uh, because there are some people I don't think they realize how long the occupation has been going on. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, right. And I think, yeah, it doesn't go back to the original, you know, claims about the foundation of Israel, right, going back to 1948 and um, the, the sort of uh, settler colonial um, nature of, of that as well. And the, the, the how this is all connected, of course, within the Palestinian narrative and experience. Um, but yeah, I mean, the West Bank and Gaza, yeah, military military occupation for 56 years, like in you know, as an American in the U.S., we think about, oh, Afghanistan, one of our longest wars, right, 20 some years. But this is more than twice that. Well, one of times. the things that I know there's going to be one person that 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 will email me and, and say this is uh, they'll say, well, Gaza isn't technically occupied. They they pushed the settlers out in 2005. Uh, Dana, do you maybe want to respond <laughs> to the type? Of, I can see the smile on your face. You want to say something? No, I just I just think it's. Um... Like, yes, there was an Israeli disengagement in 2005. The se settlements in Gaza were removed. That does not mean that the conditions of occupation ended because Gaza, even before the blockade in the aftermath of Hamas winning the parliamentary elections and then the infighting and Hamas taking over Gaza and all, all, of, all of that, even before the blockade that we're seeing today, there were severe restrictions on Gaza. Um, in that kind of interim period. And then since the blockade, since uh, Hamas wins and takes over Gaza and the, and, and, and the blockade becomes more severe, you know, Gazans can't leave. Uh, Gazans can't have, you know, they're blockaded by air, land, sea, you know, sea. Every, I mean, it's, um, I think, yeah, I think it's, it just goes against like, like common understandings of words to, to suggest that like Gaza is no longer occupied. And I, I do also want to um, uh, point out something that like, it's been 56 years of occupation. Gaza has, has actually been more severely, it, it, like its conditions have been even more severe since the Israeli disengagement. Um, and since 1994, since the priest process, ironically, that occupation has become worse um, and freedom of movement and restrictions and things like that have become even worse for Palestinians since the beginning of the peace process. Um, I was on a roundtable with um, Dr. Limor Yehuda from um, the Hebrew University, and and she mentioned how like it, before 1994, like yes, both both territories were occupied, but there was actually a little bit more engagement between Israelis and Palestinians as well as between Palestinians with each other. And the, the the severe irony of the peace process that goes nowhere is that it actually makes conditions on the ground much, much worse for people. Um, and so it's not just the 56 years of occupation. It's this last 30 years, uh, you know, almost 30 years of severe restriction.
Yeah. And I think just to, to build on a little bit, I mean, we can also think about how that shapes individual Palestinians' experiences living under occupation where, look, we're looking at a population where, um, you know, something like 60% or two, two thirds or something of the population is under the age of 30. And so they have no reference point except that slow, uh, you know, decline essentially of their conditions since the the Oslo era and um, or even, you know, even more recently for younger generations, you know, since they don't remember much before the second intifada, right? So, and weren't, weren't even alive if, if, if even they were alive, they weren't voting age to voted for Hamas in 2006. They've just lived with blockade for their entire lives. So I think that's, you know, important context. And they've only ever engaged with Israelis vis-a-vis the checkpoints and vis-a-vis the soldiers. Um, and so that or the settlers, uh, which right. are, who are also armed. So that that also like really like the, the dynamics we're seeing today are very different from 30 years ago or, or, you know, 50 years ago, unfortunately. One thing I wanted to talk about it is uh, when we talk about the occupation, if you're talking to someone that doesn't know what the conditions of the occupation are, and maybe you, you want to take this, Diana, what are these conditions that we're speaking about? You know, I always just show people the video of that um, that that kid from Brooklyn, uh, Jacob Fauci, that was, you know, taking the, the one house from a Palestinian family. And he said, uh, if, if I don't take it, someone else will take it. Uh, but, you know, I don't I don't think you can really easily explain to people these things, uh, short of like sharing news stories and whatnot. But how would you uh, explain the conditions? Uh, I mean, I think I'm, I'm sure uh, Dan, I can jump in here and help paint the picture. I mean, I think it, um, you know, in my experience, so I should say I've never been to Gaza. So all my work has been in the West Bank. Um, so all my insight into Gaza is, is secondhand, right? And it's from from contacts who've lived there and others who've, who've worked and done research there. Um, but, you know, so to speak about the West Bank, I think, uh, and Jerusalem, including, you know, inclusive of Jerusalem in some sense, um, living under military rule is intentionally unpredictable. So your best laid plans for what you're going to do that day, where you're going to do that week, what you're going to do with your um, educational future, what you're going to do in terms of a job, uh, where you're going to live, where you're going to visit when you need healthcare, all of these decisions, you know, what occupation does is it essentially prevents you from creating any kind of fixed plans, right? It's absolute so precarity. It's absolute precarity. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, and so, you know, I think that people sometimes you know, outsiders or foreigners, like they'll see pictures of, you know, some of the larger Palestinian cities or even see pictures of like downtown Ramallah, which is obviously the hub of the Palestinian Authority and of a lot of the foreign NGOs and donors. And there's a lot of development there. And, you know, they see signs of like capitalist <laughs> urban development and they think, oh, this doesn't look occupied. Or they see a map of the West Bank and they see, oh, well, there's this, you know, uh, 20% of it that's carved out um, for Palestinian 
communities and the Israeli military isn't really active there. So how is that occupation, right? They can build their apartment buildings, they can expand their farmland, et cetera, within these little enclaves, you know, so how can that affect your, uh, your life if that's where you live or you work and you just go back and forth between those little Palestinian uh, so-called autonomous enclaves. Uh, but the reality is that affects everything. I mean, it affects um, urban planning and development. It affects access to all those social services I just mentioned. It affects what roads you use. It affects if you're going to be able to go pray or visit holy sites in Jerusalem. It, um, you know, and I think, you know, so thinking about that, you know, as kind of circling back to some of what I said earlier, like there's certain elements of this that are static, right, that are constant, that I think Palestinians living under this system just build into their consciousness and and uh, their lives. But then there is that inherent precarity, as you mentioned, JG, that just kind of affects day to day, week to week, month to month, your life. And, um, and it's really hard, I think, for anyone, any of us, really, I mean, in my position in visiting, of course, I'm, you know, I'm a foreigner. I'm someone with the privilege of an American passport. I can come and go. I can come and leave. I can cross the Green Line and go in and out of, um, uh, you know, Jerusalem and the other side of the, the wall, for example, with relative, not complete ease, but with relative ease compared to Palestinians. And so it's hard for even me at, at times to imagine what that's like living with that day in and day out because uh you know because my my visits there are are uh temporary right so i guess i'll leave it there but i i want to let uh dana say uh her piece but i also wanted to ask about this so i i mentioned the infamous um american israeli settler jacob fauci and i'm very confused <laughs> So there's literally cases where these settlers can just kick people out of their homes and seize their property. Is that a misunderstanding on my part or? I guess I can, yeah, I'll jump in here and like build on some of what Diana said, but like, actually, I think, I think your question helps segue into what I was going to add anyway, which is like what Diana's describing is like, the precarity and the inconvenience and the hassle of being under occupation in terms of freedom of movement, in terms of like planning for your future, planning for your day-to-day. -day. Um, I think also people need to understand the day-to-day -day violence, like it's yeah. constant violence. Um, even if you live in your Palestinian enclave, like if you're in downtown Ramallah, you drive five, 10 minutes out, you have to go to a checkpoint. Five, 10 minutes out, you might hit a settlement. It, um, the Israeli army reserves the right at any time to to raid Palestinian enclaves, which it which it does often, even if they're supposedly under Palestinian autonomy. Um, so you are constantly facing like every Palestinian has had um an um an altercation at a checkpoint. Every Palestinian has had a family member who's gotten beaten up. Every Palestinian um has been shot at. Every Palestinian has been at school and had a raid. That that is very common. I only lived there till I was nine, and I have these memories. Um, even though I like, you know, I'm also very privileged. And later on, I got an American passport, and and you know, I I don't live there anymore. But even in that very short time frame, I have these memories of these kinds of altercations. And so it's like, 
even even if you were to restrict yourself to your five kilometer radius and be in your particular enclave and like you know just forego the ability to visit another enclave like to go from ramallah to nablus and uh, you know everybody in the west bank for example cannot go to jerusalem so like that's completely foregone um but even if you were to accept all of that you still would be facing violence these settlements that are encroaching the israeli army that conducts raids um the checkpoints you have to cross if if you unfortunately don't work right beside your house you know so um it's 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 incredible like it's constant and so that's where um your question comes in which is like the the in some parts of the occupied territories settlement happens um through illegal outposts on rural lands on like people's farmland and then um especially under the recent uh government um they're fast tracked into getting like legal status and the state comes and builds out their infrastructure for them so that they can become an outpost and they can become later on a larger settlement and that's how land acquisition is happening in the west bank in in places like east jerusalem more urban you know densely populated neighborhoods um certain neighborhoods that have not been pushed out of the city uh, using the separation wall. So there were neighborhoods that were considered Jerusalem neighborhoods filled with Palestinians that no longer have access to Jerusalem, places like Abu Dis or Azariyah. But then there, there are those neighborhoods that are within the separation wall that now have to essentially be cleaned out house by house of Palestinians. And so there's a number of different ways that like, certain quote-unquote NGOs um, uh, claim that these houses and this land doesn't actually belong to the Palestinians that have lived there. And so, uh, you know, make um, make these Palestinian families enter into long court battles and like essentially a very biased court and, uh, you know, in the meantime, start to kick people out uh, of houses or parts of houses and and make them live in this like very terrible also violent status quo day in and day out hoping that maybe the court will rule in their favor at some point and this is happening in in particularly in east jerusalem like that's that's the method of of pushing uh, palestinians out you know i was i don't know if either of you saw it but um <clears throat> there was a really chilling interview that um isaac chotner of the new yorker did with uh one of the elders of the settler movement, uh, Daniela Weiss. And he started asking her about this river to the sea slogan. And he said, you're, you're saying though, that as a, as a settler, you know, everything belongs, the, the Jewish homeland is from the river to the Nile. Um, the settlers are rather extreme uh, in this regard. Uh, do either of you want to comment on what the mindset of the settler movement is, because I mean, that interview I read was really extreme. What she was saying, you know, like people complain about Rashida Tlaib saying from the river to the sea. I mean, these people are really serious about, uh, you know, this is all greater Israel and it doesn't belong to anyone other than us. And I think people really need to recognize that. Yeah, I think, um, there's a large and growing, I would say, contingent of the settlers that are extreme and uh, religiously motivated and are essentially the constituency of Bethel Smotrich and the uh, you know religious Zionist party and growing 
a growing share of settlers, both for demographic reasons, but also for policy, you know, Israeli policy that's basically um, uh, intentionally, you know, been legalizing, as Dana was suggesting, you know, quote unquote, legalizing a lot of these uh, outposts that are established by these really, um, you know, ethno-religious supremacist settlers that are um, that are ideologically committed to seizing control over all of, uh, you know, the what they claim is the historic land of Israel and what they refer to as Judeo and Samaria, which is the West Bank. And it is, you know, for them, an eliminatory project towards Palestinians. You know, I used to, I think, grapple somewhat as a as an academic with these kind of distinctions between, well, you know, this kind of circles back to a point we've raised earlier, but other forms of Zionism, right? Other more liberal, uh, you know, forms of Zionism and that seem to be more based on separation between Palestinians and Jewish Israelis. And is that inherently also eliminatory as the literature on like settler colonialism claims that it's inherently intending to eliminate or expel the indigenous population. I think there's no question when you look at the program of these um, these settlers and these uh, you know individuals like the the one you mentioned that it is it is intended to you know eliminate and and uproot completely Palestinian presence on the land. And so you know for the takeover the, for the sort of seizing of territory and land. I mean I think another thing to point out is. Um, that has dramatically escalated since October 7th. So Dana mentioned this earlier, but we've seen like 150 families throughout the West Bank that have been essentially forcibly transferred, this is according to the Selim data, from their homes, from their land because of settler violence. And, and for people and, that don't know, Bet Selim is one of the leading human rights organizations in Israel. But go on. Exactly. Um, and you know, these, these settlers have been, I think, not only emboldened by uh, the far right, you know, uh, government that's been in place since then of, of 2022, but also by what's taken place, you know, in the wake of Hamas's attack on October 7th and the Israeli response, where there seems to be both kind of a uh, complete lack of attention or focus on what's going on in the West Bank. As you mentioned at the beginning of this interview, all, all eyes have been focused on first on Southern Israel and then on Gaza. But second, there's been an extraordinary amount of cohesion within the Israeli public, you know, the polling data suggesting that there's an extreme amount of unity behind this war in Gaza, uh, behind the goal ultimately, of course, of getting the hostages back, but also of trying to eradicate Hamas. And I think the settlers in the West Bank are taking advantage of that to essentially carry out at an even more elevated scale these acts of violence against Palestinians. Because who's going to speak up on behalf of them from within Israeli society right now? Very, very few people and very few organizations. Thank goodness for those organizations. But but they're a minority, right? Um, so I think that's... That's part of the story of, of what we've seen, not just, you know, unfolding over many years, but also just really 
aggressively escalating since October 7th. I, I want to let Dana uh, butt in here, but um, I also wanted to add, I mean, people have to keep in mind, my understanding is that uh, the National Security Minister, Edmund ben, ben Gevere, has been providing arms um, to settlers since October 7th to go into the West Bank. And I think that's something people need to be aware of as well. Uh, Dana, do you want to add at all to what Diana was saying? Um, yeah, I, um, I, I, I agree. I, I know that, so I'm not an Israeli politics expert, so I'm not suggesting that like that interview that was in the New Yorker with this like particular very extreme settler is necessarily reflective of, 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 you know, the diversity of opinions in Israeli, in Israeli society. But the problem is that these settlers have been empowered, as Diana mentioned, and have a outsized role in Israeli politics, um, especially in this government where they have like settlers in the cabinet um, who are 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 championing champion championing. <laughs> I can't say the word. <laughs> uh, you know, the, you know the word. I'm 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 uh, trying to say because all of a sudden language eludes me. Um, but but yeah, like they're 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 pushing their their entire message, somebody like Bezalel Smotrich or somebody like Itamar Ben-Gavir, they're absolutely taking advantage of this moment. And I think that's why, um, I mean, right after October 7th and like the, like I can understand the Israeli public being like the, the, the scale of that attack is, is at such a level. And some of the details are like, so, you know, so uh, egregious that, okay, we support a war. Um, but there was some discussion even at the beginning about like the reason that this happened is because this entire government has been um, completely, uh, you know, turned towards the settlers and turned towards providing security for the settlers in their, you know, uh, um, uh, pogroms against Palestinians and, and, and uh, just like the entire objective of the, of Netanyahu's cabinet has been to, empower the settlers at the expense even of national security. Um, right now, what the war is doing is allowing that conversation to pause. And I mean, Itmar Ben-Gavir said it today, I think, on Twitter. He said, the war stops equals the dissolution of government. So he, he's being very clear. Everybody understands that, like, they, right now, because there is support for the war and obviously like you know again because of what happened like people want the hostages out and people you know there's a degree of like you know revenge and anger and trauma and like so there's all of that so the israelis are pausing that conversation um and the settlers want to continue that pause for as long as possible real quick i wanted to add to that i think you're right uh mentioning that some like someone like uh daniela weiss represents the most extreme end of the settler project. Uh, but I think people also have to understand in a lot of ways, it appears to me that the settlement project has been so normalized that, you know, when speaking to experts on this topic, one of the things I've heard over and over is that there are young people buying up cheap housing that is past the green line. And they, they don't even realize that they're past the green line. That's how normalized the settlement project is. Do you want to comment on that, Diana? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I think there's been an effort um, 
really by, you know, the right flash center right over a number of years within Israeli governments to kind of erase the green lines for all intents and purposes. So, um, so, you know, sort of normalizing or not, or, um, you know, what was referred to as like the naturalization law of sort of uh, extending all of Israeli, you know, civil institutions to the settlements and, and fully integrating them into Israeli local governments and everything. And um, all of those efforts right up here to be paying off in the way that you pointed out where, you know, Israeli um, citizens themselves might not, you know, me even be entirely aware of the green line. Um, uh, so yeah, I think that that's part of it. And I just wanted to go back also to um, sort of what's come up a couple of times in the conversation. I mean, you know, Dana was mentioning violence and the very real, um, you know, tangible threat of violence and experiences of violence that Palestinians living under occupation have. And we've talked a lot about settler attacks, and we've talked as well about Israeli military uh, violence towards Palestinians. But I think another factor here is to remember that when under military occupation, you know, a population has no centralized organization, right? It has no state to defend or protect it. And of course, that seems obvious, but it that exhibits itself in various ways where even, you know, over the past decades, let's say when settler violence against Palestinians has been maybe ebbing and flowing, even sort of quote unquote small scale incidents between set settlers and Palestinians, the Palestinians have no policing authority over 60 plus percent, in fact, closer to 75 to 80 percent of the West Bank, because even outside of what's called Area C, even in Area B of the West Bank, which contains many Palestinian towns and communities, the police are not even really allowed to operate without Israeli permission. And so what that means is that, you know, it's, they're on their own, right? And so in a sense, we can understand the recent trends in the West Bank of Palestinian local militias forming as a direct response to the complete absence of any kind of security force or police force that's looking out for Palestinians. Can you explain that real quick? You mentioned Area C. Uh, can you explain how the West Bank is divided up into these areas? Yeah. Um, so with the Oslo Accords um, and specifically, you know, the interim agreement that was signed in 1995, the... Um, the negotiations resulted in the West Bank being divided into three areas. So you can find this. I mean, many organizations have like maps of this, like the UN um, Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs or UN OCHA in Palestine. Um, you know, B'Tselem, the Israeli Human Rights Organization. We mentioned you can find lots of organizations that have mapped this out. But it basically divides the West Bank into um, a myriad you know, number of non-contiguous areas. And so the major, you know, the major Palestinian cities, like the um, eight or so district capitals are all located in what's called area A. So that's the 20% of the West Bank where the Palestinian authority supposedly has the most amount of control 
an authority. And so it can actually deploy, for example, it's police forces in and around in these communities. And it also has authority over certain aspects of civil governance within those cities and towns. But then you zoom out from area A and you have another, I think it's 18 or so percent of the West Bank, that's area B, um, where the Palestinians have some of that remaining civil authority over day-to-day governance, but the Palestinian Authority police force has to essentially coordinate with and therefore ask the permission of Israel to do anything, right, to, to deploy or to, to um, you know, to cross through communities. And then the full 60% of the rest of the West Bank is Area C, which contained, you know, uh, you know, many of the Israeli settlements, um, most of the Israeli settlements, and but also, you know, thousands of Palestinians and and Palestinian Bedouin, for example, that live in the Jordan Valley and smaller Palestinian communities in those areas, they're on under completely unmediated Israeli military rule, and the Palestinian Authority has no presence and is not allowed to um, develop any land, right? So not just the Palestinian Authority itself, but Palestinians themselves in Area C. This is where you regularly see the headlines and the footage of, you know, schools being destroyed or um, people's homes or buildings being demolished because they were built without permits in Area C. Well, it is almost impossible for Palestinians to receive any permits to build in these areas. So it's essentially completely off limits to all forms of Palestinian development. Do you want to add anything to that, Dana? And I also had a, a question for you. If... Um, no, I th- I think she she covered area A, B, and C quite quite well. Um, I will say that the settlements um, are. I I will just add that the settlements are also encroaching on area B. So like some of the villages that were recently in the news having been attacked by settlers, they're not even in area C. Um, not. Not to suggest that being in Area C means they're free game, but um, right. yeah, but like even in Area B, and like from Area A, you can see settlers, so settlements. So right. um, yeah, so it's 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 a tightening situation, right? And these you know um, you know territorial maximalist like settlers like the ones we've been discussing. There's no Area A, B, and C for them. Like they they want to seize and claim all of the all of the land, it just happens to be inconvenient that there are more Palestinians living in some of these places than others. So um, Israeli human rights activist uh, Orly Noy says she calls it the smotrichization of Israeli politics. I saw you so, covered this in your um, article for the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was I was, you know, directly quoting her um, at her piece in 972 mag. But, but um, basically, like. Back to the idea of like normalizing settlement. Um, Bessalel Smotrich, the finance minister, religious Zionist party, settler himself, I think a neighbor to the lady who was uh, interviewed um, in The New Yorker. So super, super on that side. Um, Yeah, like whether Israeli, like I'm not suggesting that, like I said, like this person is an extreme person who was interviewed for The New Yorker. Um, I'm not saying everybody has those ideas, but Israeli the Israeli public doesn't necessarily understand how much those ideas have seeped in, like how much Smotrich's ideas and his decisive plan and the realities that are under being being you know created on the ground um, are supported by the Israeli political 
uh, establishment. What, what, uh, so. what is the end game? What What do people like Smotrich want? I mean, I mean, he said it. He said it very clearly. He wants them to surrender, transfer, or be killed. But, so, but why? What like why is this so? Is it just this belief in a in a greater biblical Israel? I mean, I I can't understand. Like, I'm not a religious person, so I can't really understand <laughs> okay, like religious fanaticism. <laughs> but um, but I also like from his perspective, based on what I've read about his decisive plan, he's basically saying like, there is no peace process to be had. Um, we're just not being honest about the fact that there is no peace process to be had. So we need to resolve the Palestinian problem. Um, so that, I mean, logically for him, it's like surrender, transfer, or or be killed. Dana, I wanted to ask you, so I, I wanted to talk specifically about the Palestinian perspective with regards to what's been happening, not just the past month, but also the past few years and longer. Um, I think a lot of us, including myself, are really walking on eggshells when talking about these issues. I am very sensitive to the issue of anti-Semitism, but I also feel as if people are not very sensitive in this country uh, towards the issue of anti-Palestinian and anti-Arab sentiment. And I'm often very shocked because people will mention uh, the problem of Islamophobia, but I, in some ways I think anti-Palestinian sentiment is beyond the issue of Islamophobia. I mean, I, I'm surprised at times when people will tell me that they're surprised when I have a guest on that's a Palestinian Christian. They'll say, "I oh, I thought they were all Muslims. You know, and I feel like there's complete lack of understanding about who Palestinians are and their perspective on these things. So can you speak to that issue of the sort of Palestinian perspective not being understood and the fact that oftentimes I, I think the violence that is done towards Arabs and Palestinians in this country is, uh, you know, overlooked. I mean, we just had three people shot in Vermont for the apparent crime of being Palestinian. So could you speak to that? Yeah, um, I think you're right that anti-Palestinian racism, um, some of it obviously overlaps with Islamophobia, but it's not exactly Islamophobia. Um, and there's a couple of things that people don't understand about Palestinian identity. Everything I'm about to say does not suggest a parody with anti-Semitism. Um, Anti-Palestinian racism and anti-Arab racism in this country is quite severe. I can tell you as somebody who was here during and after 9-11, like this country is very bad about that. Um, but anti-Semitism is, is, I think, different. Anti-Semitism is like, you know, it's it's a, a hundreds, thousands of years kind of dynamic and the tropes that are involved with that are, are very different. I am not an anti-Semitism scholar, so forgive me if I'm not like being as, as um, detailed as I'd want to be here. That being said, anti-Palestinian racism, back to that point, um, Syrian theorist Yassin Hajsaleh says that like the Arab and he, you know, he's Syrian, but he's talking about Syrians, Palestinians, Iraqis. Um, the Arab is like basically the political proletariat of the world. Um, it's 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 a population that is expected to be subjugated and expected not to have rights. And um, yeah, it's 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 like uh, like a microcosm of the world's ills. Um, and I think 
anti-Palestinian racism on top of that um, creates the Palestinian as like the the new avatar of anti-Semitism, the new avatar of Nazis, the new avatar like it, it's become the replacement for for um, who people can hate um, and 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 pin their hate on. Um, and obviously, like there's a lot wrong with that because the Palestinians were not responsible for the Holocaust and there are actual Nazis that people should probably be focusing on. Um, but it also, like you mentioned, like it, it completely uh, ignores the fact that Palestinians are of different faiths. Um, Palestinians, I mean, the way that the, the way that Palestinian identity is discussed, it's almost as if Palestinians are an ideology, but Palestinians are a national identity. They're not an ideology. They're a national identity, just like every other national identity group that is not, some people are like, yeah, but well, like, where's your state? Uh, which is hilarious to me because there are lots of national identities within states, um, like the Kurds, for example, or, or you know, lots of stateless people also have a national identity or national claim, um, and it, it's it's also separate from the Arab ethnicity. I, I want to over... comment on that real yeah. quick, if I could, not to interrupt you, but I, I I have said that before. I said Arab and Palestinian are not terms that should be used interchangeably. And I think there's been a lot of propaganda over the years uh, by rather extreme elements, including people like the Kahanists or followers of Mir Kahane, as well as even people like that. I, I use journalist in quotes, but Joan Peters in her book from Time Immemorial that basically pushes this line that there are no Palestinians. You know? And I think it's a really offensive line, and I was wondering if you could address that, because I, I think it's a form of erasure, and I think people have to understand that there's been an ethnogenesis, and the Palestinian uh, people have you know, a claim to a national identity, and denying it is just, to me, a really um, sort of disgusting tactic that's been employed, and I even see people do it to this day. Yeah, yeah, it's I, I always I absolutely see it. It's very dehumanizing, and it's also a historical Palestinian national identity emerges as 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 a national identity group around the same time that other national identity groups are emerging in the same region as well as in Europe. The reason the Palestinians don't have a state is because that process was interrupted. It was interrupted, you know, because of what was happening in Europe and because. Uh, there were, you know, there was a separate claim to this same piece of land and the Zionists wanted their own state. You know, we don't necessarily need to get into that history. But the fact of the matter is, like, Palestinian national identity is no more false than any other national identity. National identities are constructed. They're a very modern phenomenon. And if you look at the historical, uh, um, you know, evidence, there's many Palestinian and non-Palestinian historians who have, have written about this. Um, Palestinian national identity was emerging and take you know coalescing and taking form in the same way that other national identities were forming not just in the region but also in Europe. So there's nothing specific or nefarious or false about Palestinian national identity. I do it's correct that most Palestinians are Arab by ethnicity and you I mean obviously like the historical interplay between Arab nationalism and um, specific nationalisms like Palestinian or you know Egyptian or whatever there are there are overlaps um but that it's it's really I mean it's uh, it's a bad faith argument and and I don't know if some people are doing it out of ignorance or some people are doing it just because you know they're they're being you know specifically dehumanizing but 
the reason people try to collapse Palestinian into Arab is because they want to say, well, if you're Arab, go somewhere else. Like there's lots of other Arab countries. But that is, you know, that's false. Like there's a specific Palestinian national claim to this specific place. It's not easily replaceable. It's like telling Ukrainians, like, just go to Poland. It's totally fine. Just go to Poland, which is not, you know, it's it doesn't make sense. Um, so, yeah, I I just anytime somebody talks about like Palestinian national identity and like questions whether it exists, I just I immediately know that this person is an ignorant person who doesn't understand like how nationalism functions and where national identity comes from. It's really interesting. You mentioned Ukraine, and I I don't know if you want to comment on this, Dan, but um, I find it interesting that figures like Itamar Ben Giver and um. There's a little smoke rich uh, talk about having to denazify Gaza or denazify the West Bank. It's very, very similar um, to Putin saying, uh, well, you know, we need to denazify Ukraine. Um, and I, I think the parallels there are striking. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, the tendency of countries at war and occupying powers and quite frankly imperial and colonial powers is always to you know create this other that is just a very simply defined existential enemy and so it seems you know i you know i just want to kind of come back and just emphasize like how important everything Dana just said is about Palestinian identity and how infrequently some people even hear those narratives in in the US, for example. Um, so everyone rewind, rewind and listen to that again. I'm not trying to interrupt you, yeah. but I was going to say I'm even surprised, you know, uh, up until, uh, you know, the past few weeks, I've had people say to me, have you ever heard of the Nakba? And people ask me what it is because they know I do shows on this. I mean, people are only just starting to apparently listen to the Palestinian uh, sort of perspective. So, Right, right. I mean, this goes back to like I was just talking, in fact, to my colleague, Dirk Moses, who I know you've had as a guest on this show, um, you know, about this uh, legacy of like not naming Palestinians and like look at the Balfour Declaration, right? British policy was to support the creation of a Jewish national home to the extent that it did not, you know, prejudice uh, the rights uh, or the, I think it was the civil and communal rights, maybe I'm not exactly quoting, of the local population, right? And so, but I think that this carries over into present day discourse that is, um, you know, that either intentionally or implicitly erases Palestinian identity because, look, if you don't have to name the 5 million plus people that you're occupying or let's say the 8 million people living there currently that are discriminated against by the state of Israel, you don't have to name the millions of people that have been uh, expelled or had to flee and now live in the diaspora and multiple generations of, of, of displacement. You know, if they don't have a name, then it's a lot easier to try to ignore that they exist, right? So this comes across even in, in public statements, JG, you mentioned that, you know, Islamophobia comes up, uh, of course, anti-Semitism comes up completely uh, legitimately as 
major concerns within the academy, within our you know public sphere, um, within government. But it's you know relatively unheard of that we that people are talking about anti-Arab racism and anti-Palestinian racism specifically, um, because those identities have just been you know kind of repeatedly erased for for certain American audiences and Western audiences. Dana, could you comment on, I mentioned things like, um, you know, the Palestinian perspective on the Nakba uh, and how, you know, Palestinians view 1948 very differently uh, than Israelis. One thing I wanted to talk about with you was um, the way in which I think there's a constant litmus testing of Palestinian voices. You know, do you condemn Hamas? Do you, you know, th- there's always this bar that Palestinians are expected to um, jump over. You know, they're, they're, they're always expected to hit that bar. Uh, do you think there is uh, a problem with that in the, in the way that this is, you know, th- there is a litmus testing that goes on of Palestinian voices? I mean, um, yeah, I mean, a short answer, yes. Uh, I think it's a problem because it's used not in service of like finding common ground. Um, instead, it's used to deflect from the conversation. So you'll have like a Palestinian professor on like BBC or something. I don't know. I'm I'm picking on the BBC because they recently got into some hot water with terrible translation. Um so it's on the top of my mind. But in any case, so you'll have a Palestinian professor on some news channel and um, the, they're talking about some massacre that has occurred. And the first question is, like you said, like, do you condemn violence or do you condemn Hamas or do you con- um, or I, I even saw like a Palestinian student who was on, I think it was the BBC who she had just lost like 30 or 40 members of her family. Um, and she's she's currently outside of Gaza, but the rest of her family is in Gaza. And th- th- this was the first question. I think that when it's used that way, obviously it's problematic because it's deflecting from the actual discussion. We're having a conversation about words and personal condemnations as if every Palestinian is somehow responsible uh, you know, uh, for for the actions of a particular militant group or for the actions of a of a political leadership or whatever, um, instead of talking about the actual thing we're talking about, that's different from a discussion, let's say, between activists who are trying to find solidarity with each other and bridge gaps. And we say, okay, like let's have a conversation about like shared values, like where what what's your line and what's my line about the use of violence and like you know what we should condemn. That's a different matter. But the problem is it's all the first and not the second. Um, and and obviously that's a problem. And, and to, you know, back to kind of like the framing of your question, I don't see that same kind of litmus testing for the other side. Um, like I would, I would love to get people's positions on whether they think Palestinians should exist. Like that's, I think, a pretty clear litmus test. Because when I use the word Palestine in anything, th- that alone is enough to make people angry and to send me reams of hate mail, um, just acknowledging that the word Palestine is, 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 you know, in existence. Um, so like, we don't see that same kind of litmus testing. And I, and it, I mean, it just speaks to the fact that like, 
the United States is or the, or the U.S. context is 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 very um, like like we mentioned anti-Arab and anti-Palestinian. I just wanted to add to that briefly. Just I wanted to bounce this off you. Um, the other thing I often hear, and I've even heard this from policy people, and I, I understand on a pragmatic level, although I I think it's kind of callous. Uh, I've heard people say, well, the Palestinians have to put their grievances about the past behind them in order to move forward. And I I mean, we all have to look forward, but you know, 1948 is within living memory. Uh, and I I think there is a certain callousness saying, well, you can't have grievances about the past, especially when that past is in, as I said, living memory. Do you want to comment on that? I, I just think that when we look at like recent historical um uh like recent historical trajectory, like since the Oslo Accords. I think repeatedly Palestinians have demonstrated that they are willing to move forward. Um, they've, they, you know, political leadership to a lot of people's like great anger um, have have demonstrated that they're willing to put aside like key issues for the Palestinian public to move forward with the peace process. Um, and we see from polling back then also like how much Palestinians like were hopeful about a peace process. They were hopeful about Palestinian autonomy. Um, and, and that meant like concessions on some things. The, the thing, you know, what happens when you have a peace process that goes nowhere and conditions that worsen and an international community that empowers your oppressors for years and years and years is that things become more zero sum. And not, so, not just that, but also every time there seems to be some movement in the peace process and then it doesn't work out, it's always Palestinians that are blamed or their leadership when, you know, I, I was just reading um, Robert um, Robert Malley, who uh, worked uh, in the Clinton administration, and he worked with the Camp David 2000 summit. You know, people ignore that. He said it wasn't as generous of an offer as people um, seem to claim. Aaron David Miller, who was also there at Camp David, has been, yeah. has, has gone on the record to say, like, yeah, we kind of screwed up. We gave the Israelis, like, veto power in the right. negotiating pro and, and process. Yet, and yet, and yet not, not to get partisan, and yet Hillary Clinton is going on The View saying it's all Arafat's fault. He turned down a good deal. And I, I think it's very unfair. Yeah, I, I mean – I know that there are certain voices in the American political establishment that like want to clean their own records and like seem like, you know, pin this on other people. Um, Dennis Ross is one of them. Um, but I, I mean, I think it's like the historical record is clear. People have admitted. Um, and I, I think that this, the, the, this binary once again, of just like pinning the failures of a very biased peace process on one side I mean, everybody, every any serious person knows that this is not the case. Everybody, everybody knows. I'm not suggesting that Palestinians didn't miss some opportunities or didn't make mistakes in the negotiations. That that can all, you know, those that that discussion can be had. Um, but back to your original point is like, there have been like we don't need to guess. We don't need to think about counterfactuals. We have had in recent memory uh, situations and and conditions where Palestinians have been willing to compromise. And for a variety of reasons that that did not go anywhere. And so in 2023, a Palestinian is going to be, you know, a Palestinian, let's say, being asked in a poll or a Palestinian being asked in an interview um, what they want from the Israeli side. They're going to be much more zero sum about things. That makes sense. That, I, I don't think that we don't need to 
and people who care about this place or maybe like policymakers who want um to think about uh, a, a different future like we don't need to be beholden to the reality we're seeing right now if you provide an alternative framework and you provide an uh, um, a vision for an alternative reality for people you can pull people along you can convince people of 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 being less zero sum the problem is like the reality we 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 have right now doesn't offer them anything aside from being zero sum and like being maximalist well hey i want to thank both of you for coming on parallax views um any parting thoughts diana and then dana and we'll wrap it there no, I mean, thank you for the opportunity. Um, I'm I'm glad we we covered a lot of ground. I think, um, yeah. I mean, I would say, uh, I guess, just to your listeners that have started, like, more recently becoming interested in learning about what's going on in in Palestine and uh, in in the occupied territories, um, you know, continue to continue to follow these things and continue to read about it. Um, that would be my plea. <laughs> I would say. Um... Yeah, I, I, I don't uh, have anything very pithy, but like, continue to read about it and continue to understand Israel-Palestine in the context of global trends. Um, and um, I think a big issue with what happens in Israel-Palestine, like, yes, like right now, I understand why it's happening because the violence is so abhorrent and such at such a level uh, of of severity, um, but the trends that we see in Israel-Palestine are 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 not exceptional to Israel-Palestine. Um, and we can understand that reality better if we connect it to trends around the world. Um, and so what I- are you, are, are you drawing comparisons to other humanitarian crises when you say that? I'm, I'm, I'm drawing comparisons to other violent states and violent state building processes um, that you know whether uh, you want to use the settler colonial framework or not we've seen violence um of certain levels and displacements and 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 all of those things happening in other contexts as well i was going to say we just saw what happened with nagorno karabakh um, exactly yeah. exactly so like in artsakh we have an ethnic cleansing um and if we see israel palestine in the context not only the historical context and we de-exceptionalize it that way, but we see Israel-Palestine in the context of global trends and a normalization of violence and the kind of collapse of the very weak liberal order, um, I think that helps people make those connections better. Um, and I guess the last thing I would say is like, just like people should affirm humanity and like try not to dehumanize the other side um, and and understand that like, very you know very normal good not monsters can come to conclusions that are different than you um and and, and it's okay to engage with those ideas and it's okay to understand the other side even if you don't agree with it well that does it for this edition of parallax views i hope you found the conversation to be informative and enlightening as always if you appreciate the work I do, I hope you consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. I need you, dear listener, to help keep this show going. I'm working overtime these days, and 
I need this support right now to keep the show going. So, you know, even a dollar will help. If you go with the $10 tier though, you do get a producer's credit on each and every episode of the show, and that could really help me out as well. So, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.